everybody from Nairobi. This is the Big Cat People series of podcasts. This, one of those occasional one-offs, and it's called Becoming Conservationists. From traveling the world as wildlife photographers and television presenters to founding the Sacred Nature Initiative in 2021. Angie and I had very different backgrounds growing up. She was born and grew up in Africa, while I grew up on a farm in Berkshire in rural England. Both of us love the outdoors, wilderness, art and photography. And more than anything, we love nature. Just being out there, exploring its wonders and often drawing what we saw. We're both artistic. We can both draw. It was a world and continues to be of endless fascination. Nature, art, photography are very much part of who Angie is. It's her essence. She was always a photographer. It was a way to express herself, to record what she saw and what she felt. Her sense of artistry was always apparent. I remember on many occasions taking photographs of the same subject and at the same time as Angie and then looking with a degree of astonishment or astonishment and pleasure to see what she'd seen that I hadn't and how she'd turned that moment of opportunity into something different. For me, a camera was a way to capture images of animal behavior. It was that zoologist in me. That was my real fascination, understanding how wild creatures lived. I took pictures to record what I saw happening. While Angie wanted so much more, she wanted to reveal their emotions, to tune into their essence, to capture mood and atmosphere. I was fortunate to be in the best and easiest place in the world to take photographs, Kenya's incomparable Masai Mara, living at, variously, Mara River Camp from 1907 to 81, Tembo on the other side of the river from around 82, 1982 to 1992, and then Governor's Camp during the Big Cat years from 1996 and intermittently to this day. I certainly did not understand light, and Angie did. She could visualize the wonder of side light and backlight, just like Hugo van Lauwek, the great photographer who worked in Serengeti for so many years, Jane Goodall's former husband. And he saw, and Angie saw, how it could transform her subject into something so much more moody, while I tended to have the sun over my shoulder, front light, boring. There's no modeling of your subject. There's no shadows. You have to at least always get a few degrees off having the sun coming directly over your shoulder. From the moment Big Cat Diary was commissioned in 1996, the producers and executives back at the Natural History Unit in Bristol in England, natural enough, were on the lookout for other diaries to fit the format. We had two series of elephant diaries, one of Big Bear Diary and five or six episodes of Chimpanzee Diaries, all of which I was fortunate to co-present or narrate. But as successful and intriguing as they were, they simply did not have the variety of species or stories to match our iconic three African big cats. The beauty and awe of big cats, beauty and the beast, if you will, is simply irresistible to audiences, added to which the fact that we had histories on all our lands, leopards and cheetahs, to share with the audience that we could explore from one series to the next. 
No wonder it held people enthralled from 1996 to 2008, 12 years, with people still dipping into repeats of the show right up to the present time. We get so many people saying, I'm watching Big Cat Diary. I have to get up at two in the morning to do it. And you know, this idea of, well, it's all been done before. I remember when we were working on The Marshlands with Brian Jackman, the book that we wrote, illustrated, and which was published in 1982, and how people were so quick to say to us, but what are you going to tell us we don't know, or know already? Wasn't there Elsa? Wasn't there Born Free? Didn't George and Joy Adamson pretty much say it all? You know, what's going to be new about your book? Well, what was going to be new was everybody has a different story to tell and a different way of illustrating it, whether it's with drawings, paintings, or photographs. It's your view. Don't let anybody else put you off doing, following that dream. Now, from my early days on television with Julia Pettifer and Nature Watch, he had a series called Nature Watch, which took him to visit with people with a passion for wildlife, scientists, vets, you know, painters, people like myself, zoologists, biologists, to explore the world that they were dipping into. So in 1981, Julian Pettifer featured me on his series on Central Television Nature Watch, and it focused on my work with the Marshlands. That was followed for myself by appearances as a presenter on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Things from 1981 to 85. That was the Marlin Perkins show that ran for, it was as, I think, as long running as any other show besides a news program, ran for about 25 years in America, switched a lot of people onto conservation, but there were a lot of things I was uncomfortable about, the way they were filming it, the way they were setting up things. I didn't want to be part of that. I wanted to be in the wild recording what I saw with real truth to every part of it. So after Mutual of Omaha, it culminated with the BBC's foray into outside broadcasts from Africa with myself and Julian Pettifer again, presenting, he the main presenter, me the co-presenter, Africa Watch in 1989. We were camped in the forest along the Mara River. We had an amazing time filming that series. Ten days of recording going live. We, we went out in America, in Japan. I met Mitsuaki Owago, the wonderful Japanese photographer. Lions trashed the cables in the, um, in the control tent at one point, but it was a real buzz. Getting the pictures out now, that was a challenge because in those days you couldn't send them directly by satellite to the UK. Had to go via Longanot, the Kenya satellite tracking station. And I could see by that time the possibilities of more work as a television presenter opening up for me, although it would be six years before the BBC came knocking on the door again with Flamingo Watch in 1995. That was when Simon King, Chris Packham and myself told the stories of this extraordinary pink paradise of flamingos on the Rift Valley soda lakes and in particular on the ones in Kenya. Meanwhile, I still love to spend time writing and illustrating books such as The Leopard's Tale, published in 1985, The Great Migration, 1989, where I went to Serengeti to complete the story, having watched the wildebeest surging up into the Mara during the dry season. I wanted to see them carving. I wanted to be on the short grass plains, see the spectacle of them spread thickly everywhere around you. And then Painted Walls, which came from watching the wild dogs, let me tell the story that I'd begun in the Mara with the Itong pack, living outside the reserve that roamed around not too far to the east 
of Myra River Camp, where I was based then. So Painted Wolves, 1991. And then Kingdom of Lions, back with the lions again, but on this occasion, over on the other side of the river from the Marsh Pride, with the Kitchwatembo Pride, because that's where Angie and I were living. So Kingdom of Lions, 1982, and it was during that period that I was doing all those books that I met and married Angie. That was in 1992, 30 years ago. We were married atop the Ololulu or Olololo escarpment, also known as the Syria escarpment, that marks the western boundary of the Masai Mara National Reserve and runs all the way south into the Serengeti in Tanzania. And, you know, as pristine as the paradise can look on, you know, within the boundaries of the reserve and the park, you only have to go up over the Syria escarpment that I, like I used to do in the old days, off to get water and provisions for the camp at Logorian over to the west, up over that rise and over the Syria escarpment, and you are straight into settlement. It's packed with people now, subdivided, people, agriculturalists, Maasai, with their cattle still up there, but it's like chalk and cheese compared with everything that you have when you're in the reserve, the wilderness factor. Now, meeting and getting to know Angie made a huge difference to my way of thinking. She constantly reminded me of how much else there was to be discovered about this amazing planet of ours, whether, whether taking note of the star-filled sky or what wonders lay beneath the surface of the ocean. Angie's always on the move, always looking for the next project to ensure a sense of purpose to our daily lives, whether creating a CD-ROM on Safari in the early 1990s or refreshing our best-selling Safari guides to East African animals and birds, which we're delighted the guides here in East Africa love to use to help them identify the creatures they most commonly see and the birds on safari and to share it with their guests and for guests to have a souvenir, a beautifully illustrated book or books, birds and animals they can take back home with them. And it was Angie who counselled me to plan ahead, not to sit in my comfort zone based on the success of our last project, not, but to look very clearly at the ever-changing world we live in, whether that might be in the political domain insecurity where you're living, the employment landscape, or in our private lives. And though Angie is probably happiest when in sight and touch of the ocean, that does not mean lying on a sandy beach soaking up the sun. She wants to be doing something. She'd far rather be exploring the reef, whether snorkeling or paddling about, taking long walks to the far off horizon, or planning our next book, TV series or travel adventure. She just loves to keep busy and makes jolly sure that I do too. Now we realise that television work with the BBC or anybody else would one day dry up. And I remember um, our friend, you know, or one friend saying to me one time, Clive Thomas, who we were doing trips with out here very successfully and to other parts of the world too, you know, Johnny, just remember that when you don't appear on television then people can forget you so quickly. You know, stay focused. Try and make sure that your public profile remains strong, that your face is out there. But we realised that one day it could dry up, dwindle to a trickle, particularly after Big Cat Live aired in, 20, in 2008, and that hosting photo workshops needed to become an important part of our working lives, along with public speaking engagements and our conservation work. And, you know, it was so apparent that 
as amazing as those 12 years with Big Cat Diary was, that eventually the BBC, the production people, the execs would be looking for the next best thing. It wasn't that Big Cat Diary couldn't have continued, it could have, but we'd refreshed it from Big Cat Diary to Big Cat Week, turning it into event to Big Cat Live. Where would you go next with it except to keep repeating it? And you could say, well, just like people said about books, what's new? What are you going to tell us new? There would always be something new happening in the lives of the Lans because we knew them as individuals. Each had a different history. So that was certainly true. But I was fortunate because I had the chance after Big Cat Diary so around 2010, two years later, to present the two-part BBC series, Truth About Lions, with Professor Craig Packer, who is the former head of the long-running Serengeti Lion Project that began in 1966 with the amazing George Shaller's landmark study. He's just reached 90 years of age, as far as I know. His landmark study in Serengeti that focused on the impact predators had on the prey species. In the old days, people used to think you had to protect the prey species from these voracious predators, not that there was a balance between their numbers. Let's face it. The predators can't survive if there's nothing to feed on. So the prey population or some source of food always has to be there for them. So, so, so George Schaller also wrote up his findings on the Serengeti's leopards, cheetahs, hyenas and wild dogs. And certainly the work of Schaller in the 60s into the 70s, a lot, as a zoologist, me with that background of zoology, thinking, should I do research or not? Looking at his amazing career where he went from studying, you know, lions, gorillas, onto lions, to tigers, to jaguars, and then extending himself into areas of China and the Far East to help actually conserve huge areas of land. So he became a true conservationist in terms of going from the field as a landmark, you know, amazing field biologist to actually working with governments to conserve the wildlife areas they still have. Now, both Angie and myself have always been conservationists at heart. But increasingly, we found ourselves asking, what were we really doing to make a difference? Were we just out there enjoying ourselves, taking pictures, pictures for ourselves, pictures of things we loved? What was the purpose? What was the benefit? Where were we giving back? Were we taking photographs of wildlife and spending time in wilderness areas simply because we loved to travel? and continue to indulge our obsession with the Maasai Mara's big cats. How could we best make an impact on the state of the planet? The gathering storm of climate crisis and devastating loss of biodiversity. The dwindling fauna and flora that has become so evident and that we were increasingly witnessing on all seven continents that we visited. These thoughts led us to create our first Sacred Nature book in 2016. We called it Sacred Nature, Life's Eternal Dance, focusing on our beloved Mara Serengeti here in East Africa, a vast ecosystem, 25,000 square kilometers, whose extent is demarcated by the wanderings, the nomadic wanderings of the 1.2 million wildebeest, 200,000 zebras, and hundreds of thousands of gazelles that move between the greater Maasai Mara in Kenya, in the north, and the Serengeti in Tanzania to the south. It tells the story, Sacred Nature, Life's Eternal Dance, of this great migration and the way in which the Maasai pastoralists adapted over time to times of plenty and times of devastating famine. 
During the few hundred years they've roamed the high steppe country and savannah landscapes of East Africa, they, they're Nilotic in their background. They come from further north, traveled down the Nile with their cattle, settled in East Africa, in the high steppe country and the savannas, maybe 300 years ago. And the story we're telling narrates our 40 years study of the lions, lepers, and cheetahs that have held us in the thrall. So that first book was the Mara Serengeti ecosystem, the area that we knew best, the area that we wanted to lavishly display and share with you. But we had to chuckle when talking about publishing the first volume of Sacred Nature with our great friend, photographer Rick Salmon, who lives in New York and who's been on safari with us in the Maasai Mara with his wife, Susan. We had a great time. We recorded video. We learned so much from Rick and Susan. I mean, talk about energy. Dynamic, always on the move. Right now, looking at AI photography, and that's a whole nother kettle. In fact, we'll be talking to Rick on one of our podcasts. Now, when I mentioned the topic of books to Rick, he said, books? Do you mean e-books? Or an app, perhaps? Surely you're not thinking of paper, a book, a real book. How does that stack up financially for your investment in time? Rick's a savvy businessman. And of course, we all have to pay attention to the pennies and the pounds, the dollars. The idea of a real book with images printed on the very best Japanese paper and published in China, a big portfolio book where, as Angie had insisted, the images did the talking, writ large, not confined by layout or simply there to illustrate the text like so many of our previous books had been. The pictures, the editor would say, yeah, okay, we need a picture of this to illustrate what you've said. No. This was to be the kind of book any photographer would have dreamed about seeing published. But, right, but Rick was right to query the idea from the economic point of view. Publishers in general look to cut costs wherever possible. Being in the quality of the paper and the standing of the printer, how good the printers were, how expensive, and the number of pages particularly, and the number of images. Colors expensive. Big books with lots of lavish illustrations are expensive. But by looking at those details for the publisher, that way they can most easily bring the book to the retail stores at a saleable price. Better still, if the book is a tie-in to a popular TV series. Now, the only way to beat the system is to self-publish or find a publisher who just loves books, illustrated books with lots of images. Now, we'd managed that in the past with the wonderful elderly, and I'm sure he's passed by now, but what a gent, let's salute him, Harry Ricketts of Fountain Press, who for many years published the book of the winning entries in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. Harry truly loved books. They were his life, his pride and joy. So we felt very fortunate when he published our large format landscape-shaped book, Mara Serengeti, A Photographer's Paradise. Now that was in the year 2000. The book ran to seven print runs and was highly admired for the production values along with the imagery. Now, we were very fortunate in the instance of wanting to actually take our idea, Angie's ideas of this big, wonderful book, to find a publisher 
who himself was a photographer who loved paper and real books, Heinrich Vandenberg of HPH Publishers in South Africa, who was our publisher for both Sacred Nature 1, that first book, Life Eternal's Dance, and Sacred Nature 2. More on that in a minute. But the only way we were able to finance all the production values to make Angie's dream of a book we could live with was by reaching out to friends and corporates such as Canon Europe to sponsor part of the cost. They were amazing. Sponsored that first Sacred Nature book and the second second Sacred Nature book and the autobiography, our book, The Big Cat Man. The response was heartening and consequently Sacred Nature 1 is now out of print, both as a standard and limited edition book. And we would say a special thank you to Michelle Zogzogi, our great friend from the Lebanon, who's a wonderful photographer, who we met in India and who then started to come on safari with us in the Mara and has gone on to create extraordinary images. In fact, his picture of one little black and white cat sitting totally without any thought in its world, just daydreaming, and another one with its paws spread midair, about to leap on it from behind. Just one. The funny, humorous images competition And it was first prize. It won the first prize. It was the top picture. And we just love it. So, Michelle, if you're listening, and we hope you will, a big shout out to you. Well done. Now, having published that first book, it would inevitably lead to a second book in the series, which we called Sacred Nature, Volume 2, Reconnecting People to Our Planet. It was published in 2021, and both Sacred Nature books went on to win gold and silver awards, respectively for photography in the Independent Books Publishers Awards. And 95% of the images, remember, in the first volume were Angie's. She's the real photographer. I just carry the kit and sometimes drive the car and get into a good position, I hope. And there is no question that the breathtaking design concept and layout of both books by our son David in Santa Fe made the imagery displayed a feast for the eyes. I'm sure it swayed the judges. And we're so thankful to David and his wife, Dory, the other part of the Big Cat family engaged in producing these kind of things. Now, Sacred Nature 2 followed the same theme as Volume 1 of attempting to address the fact that nearly 60% of people now live in urban areas, many of them crammed and cocooned in high-rise tower blocks with little or no contact with green spaces. They're literally cut off physically and emotionally from the wonder of nature to the extent that many people now believe that humans can survive without paying paying attention to what's going on out there, where our food ultimately derives from, and up there, the atmosphere we breathe, and down there, the water we drink. Not surprisingly today, we're paying the price for our collective carelessness in the way we utilize the Earth's resources, viewing land and landscapes as a commodity that we own, to be plundered as if it were inexhaustible, with no thought for tomorrow, next week, next year, or into the next decade. We need to find short-term solutions while thinking and planning wisely our next moves to try and ensure more environmentally friendly long-term outcomes. Anyone who may think we have reached a tipping point is wrong. We've already walked blindly over the precipice, but we cannot give up 
As bleak as it may look right now, with images of devastating fires in Australia, California, Greece, along with melting ice caps and glaciers in the polar regions, we cannot be sure of the future. Yes, we need to beware the human tendency of being unerringly optimistic. But there are actions we can take or try to convince our leaders to take, but I always say don't wait for government, that may help us cope with the inevitable fallout of our actions and what they will have on the future of our children and grandchildren and life as we know it. There is no time to be thinking about what can we do. You've got to act. Now, looking at the big picture, as well as the detail, is vital to our survival. And Angie was right in insisting, with this second volume, Reconnecting People to Our Planet, we take a landscape approach, an ecosystem view of the planet. As she reminded me, it's no good simply glorifying and focusing people's attention on the individual, whether it be polar bears, lions, mountain gorillas, rhino or elephants. All those iconic species that we see so much about, we need to raise awareness of the wild landscape that these great creatures and everything else besides rely on to survive. Give them space and they'll thrive. Look at lions, for instance, that have a gestation period of just three and a half months and can produce four cubs in a litter, their populations can rebound relatively quickly, given the chance and a home to live in. They need space to live. I love this idea. Amy Dickman, professor, head of the wild crew, the wildlife, uh, wild carnivore conservation unit at Oxford University, who's created with Elaine Cottrell, lion landscapes, which actually looks at the landscape, looks at the whole picture, not just individual animals, but populations, looks at the impact on the communities, works with communities to mitigate the threats from these large carnivores. And so we broke up Sacred Nature 2 into six ecosystems, six chapters, savannas, like the Mara Serengeti, the green world of forests and plants, deserts, mountains, a watery world of fresh water and the deep blue of the oceans and the polar regions at the ends of the earth, which we've been so fortunate to visit. We looked at the challenges each landscape is battling with, the successes and failures of attempts to conserve them and examine what we can do or what can be done to try to ensure that, in the words of the great recently deceased biologist and author, Professor E.O. Wilson, in his book Half Earth, do no further harm to the biosphere. Now, Professor Wilson, he wrote this book, Half Earth, which basically was that if we leave half of the earth to nature, we don't mess with it in the way that we have with so much, there was a chance we could get ourselves out of this fix, out of this hole that we've dug by our ineptitude, by our ignorance in managing the way we operate on the planet. Well, He's since died. The book was written a while ago now. And it doesn't look very promising. That's why it's so urgent. This is an urgent mission. Now, Professor Kay Milton, who we came across while researching for the Sacred Nature books and who studied and then taught anthropology at the Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland, wrote a fascinating book, Loving Nature 
an ecology of emotion. And in the book, she explores human beings' connection to nature, something that she found can often be traced back to the early influence of a father, mother, relative, or simply a friend whose passion for nature is infectious. That might be driven by love of birds, flowers, insects, big cats, or perhaps by innate love of all of it, of nature, something that has earned itself the title biophilia. This seemingly embedded love of nature, of being out there, even though so many people aren't. Now, most likely we all have it to some degree, but in many people it's become buried beneath the seemingly insatiable quest for material possessions. Connected to our devices, the smartphones, iPads, laptops, and other ways in which we create and evolve a virtual world, we've become alienated from the wonder and therapeutic value of time spent in nature. Yet it's free, certainly in terms of a walk in the nearest city park, taking time to look a little more keenly at nature's inexhaustible creativity. To literally smell the roses, listen to the birdsong, gaze into a pond of water. Remember, it's therapeutic. We come from nature. We need nature. We've just forgotten that. And the American author who wrote Last Child in the Woods, I think I mentioned it to you in a previous podcast, this sense that our kids are not getting out there enough. They're missing out on this wonderful adventure. They're too worried about their devices. Now, natural history certainly was, and maybe still is to some degree, considered the great British pastime. A hobby rather than the basis of a career. My professor of zoology at Queen's Belfast reminded me of that on graduating with a degree in zoology that I'd studied for between 1968 and 1972. But one way or another, natural history is coming back into fashion. Whether browsing the selection of new books in a bookstore where nature and travel writing fills the shelves or in the guise of a GCSE, General Certificate of Secondary Education, in natural history, UO levels, that's what they were when I took them, in UK schools. So suddenly, people, youngsters, have a chance to study natural history for one of their GCSEs, thanks in large part to lobbying by the author and conservationist Mary Colwell. She who wrote Curl You Moon, a wonderful book about those extraordinary birds with that long curved beak, the curlew. And, and us, well... In 2021, inspired by the success of the Sacred Nature books and encouraged by our great friends, in fact, we're about to join them on safari in the Mara at, R- at Rikeru Camp and Asalia Naboshu, going to have the time of our lives, with Scott and Caro Greenhall from the UK and their children. And they came on safari a few years ago and they really urged us to get to it on our conservation work, to create something. And so we did. We founded the non-profit Sacred Nature Initiative to further our aims of reconnecting people to nature. It's a global quest and we're so lucky to have Steve Shelley in the UK as our chairman. A Kenyan, married to a Kenyan, just with amazing breadth of knowledge. An expert on climate change and global warming. And so he reminded us this is a movement as much as a cause, to remind people across all cultures that we can all have a sacred nature, 
It's there right in front of you. For some people, a potted plant in their kitchen. We can all find ways into make it, in which to make a difference. Don't buy that new pair of shoes or a new suit. Give your old clothing to Oxfam. Be careful about your water, about turning your lights off. Don't travel so much overseas. We'll be listening to that word of advice for sure. We can do something to help make the change. Now, Sacred Nature 2 is, or rather, sorry, the Sacred Nature Initiative is built on three pillars. To inspire through our work, through our books, through our television series, through our talks, through our exhibitions. To educate with our children's books, to reaching out to children, mentoring youngsters, helping people to understand the power of nature, the need of nature, our link to nature, that it is life itself. And then to conserve. If you feel inspired, you may want to learn more. If you know more, you may want to try to conserve, to join up to your local conservation group. Do it today. Subscribe to a wildlife magazine. Maybe BBC Wildlife, incredible magazine if you live in the UK. Take an interest in what other people are doing. Step up and make your voice and actions heard. It's no good. Nobody can afford to say, but I'm just, my little voice, nobody's going to hear me. Well, how about raising your voice? Now, the two Sacred Nature books have become the flagships for the Sacred Nature Initiative. And our son David has created a beautifully, a beautiful and informative Sacred Nature initiative website sacrednatureinitiative.com take a look at look at it it's filled with ideas ways you can sign up you can join the movement and we encourage you also to donate to it so as we can continue the work so what have we done so far to reward to reward the trust that so many of you have put into the idea of the sacred nature initiative Well, quite apart from the successful publication of Sacred Nature, Volumes 1 and 2, and David's website, we are advocates and partners in helping to find better ways to better conserve the great Maasai Mara ecosystem here in Kenya. It's a work in progress, and with the help of the wonderful Abraham Joff, Dom West and Lorna J. Bradley, or L.J. Bradley at Untitled Filmworks, who we created the TV series Big Cat Tales, seasons one and two, with For Animal Planet, and who we worked with on their series for Netflix, Tales by Light. You've got to watch that if you love photography and travel. With their help, we've compiled and narrated a video for Narok County Government to promote both the idea of the Masai Mara as a year-round destination and... Narok County Government's One Mara brand. As we say, the Mara always delivers, come rain or shine. And that the green seasons, a much more appropriate word for what is sometimes described as the low seasons, David Stogdale, great man, friend from way back when we arrived in Kenya on my first on that overland trip, reminded us, no, low season, that doesn't sound so good. Green season. And it occurs... There's two green seasons. They occur during the rains, end of March through June. That's our long rains, <laughs> if they come. And mid-October to end of December, that's our short rains, if they come. But they're wonderful times to visit. You'll always see big cats. Both lions and leopards are territorial, so no chance you'll miss those. Your guides will know where to find them. They live there. And so too are some cheetah males. So the guides know where to look for them year-round. And not only may the cost of a safari be less during the green season, 
there will certainly, unless things change, be most likely fewer visitors. Everybody wants to come in August, September. It's the time when the school holidays are on in Europe and America. And of course, a lot of people get fixated on the idea, we've got to see the migration, the river crossings. Well, you can go to Serengeti to see that too. Or you can go and see the wildebeest down on the Serengeti Plains in the rainy season. January through March, wonderful time to visit there. But whatever, in that green season, often fewer visitors and hence fewer vehicles. So, bliss. Now, currently, we're working on a landmark exhibition called Journey Through Time. Now, this is a project suggested to us by the lovely Dr. Mauricio Anton, an extraordinary artist, paleo artist, who creates panoramas of times past, of our journey in East Africa from two millions of years ago. Currently, we're working on a landmark exhibition called Journey Through Time. It's a collaboration between ourselves, the National Museums of Kenya, Dr. Frederick Manthi, and also the wonderful Dr. Mauricio Anton, who's an artist, he's an expert on prehistoric big cats, and creates these wonderful artistic panoramas, dioramas, of life as it was when man first set foot on the savannas. And of course, East Africa, Kenya, you know, we often think of certainly as East Africa as the cradle of mankind. So Mauricio approached us, the Sacred Nature Initiative, to see whether we would be able to fund the exhibition at the National Museum. And it was going to be called Journey Through Time. And we said, yes, we would do that. And then also, why not make it into three parts, the exhibition? The prehistoric, with all of Mauricio Anton's wonderful imagery. The present, Mara Serengeti, the savannah landscape where early man would have been walking out from the forest onto, with pictures of the big cats and the great animals, and then Mauricio showing how they'd changed over time. And then the future, Steve Shelley, introducing us to the impact, the importance of getting real about the climate crisis, what we can do about it, and also to include areas where young people can interact with the content. So a great project. We hope that the exhibition will launch in February 2024, and it will be there for a year and then hopefully become a traveling exhibition to other places in Kenya and East Africa. Now, in tandem with creating the exhibition, we've also been pioneering something called Safari Etiquette in partnership with Narok County Government to encourage safari guides and visitors to be more aware and sensitive to the potential damage harassing wildlife causes, whether when vehicles gather in large numbers at a big cat sighting, we've seen more than 50 vehicles surrounding cheetahs or lions or when watching or waiting for a river crossing to commence, involving hundreds, if not thousands, of wildebeest and zebras, and up to 200 vehicles on either side of the river. Cheetahs, being most active in the daytime, are a particular cause for concern when it comes to you know, monitoring visitor activity in areas like the Mara with vehicles putting mothers with cubs under intense pressure at times, as well as disturbing a cheetah or cheetahs trying to hunt. And we're delighted that the authorities are currently in the process of adopting the essence of what we've called safari etiquette. So just some protocols that if people observe will make it a much 
richer experience watching wildlife and a much less harmful one to the environment. The Kenya Wildlife Service, they run and administer our national parks and are responsible for all wildlife throughout Kenya. They have a role to play in the Mara and they've just announced, so Kenya Wildlife Service, KWS for short, the formation of a species uh, the formation of a cheetah protection and monitoring unit, which will be in charge of protecting this endangered species from harassment by humans in the Masai Mara. Scientists have already shown that cheetahs in high-density tourism areas in the Mara raise one cub or less compared to those breeding in areas with fewer visitors that on average raise two or three cubs. And we're very proud to be patrons of UK patrons for the Cheetah Conservation Fund with its headquarters in Namibia, and in the Mara, the Kenya Wildlife Trust Mara Predator Conservation Program, which we're ambassadors for and which does great outreach work, not only studying the lions, the predators, including the wild dogs in the area, giving us scientific hard evidence based information so as managers can plan how they monitor and deal with the tourism factor in the Mara in relation to these predators, and also in working with local communities to help offset the dangers for them of conflict with large carnivores, with the lions, leopards, hyenas. So that's all for today, but do please check out our eBooks on photography. There will shortly be one specifically on the safari etiquette to encourage people to make the most of their safari without damaging the natural environment or putting the wildlife at risk. Please do check out our website for details on the next series of podcasts. That's www.jonathanangelascott.com and the Sacred Nature Initiative to see how you can help us to help with our mission of reconnecting people to our planet. Our website, www.jonathanangelascott.com, Sacred Nature Initiative, sacrednatureinitiative.com. That's all for today, and we look forward to talking with you again. Bye-bye.